You can listen to episodes of Conversations with Joe earlier than everybody else and completely ad-free on Nebula. When you sign up for Nebula, our creator-owned streaming service, you not only get access to ad-free content from my channel, you also get bonus episodes in my videos and exclusive series not available anywhere else. Sign up for Nebula by clicking the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe to support the podcast and get more eye-opening content. So they're trying to think about how do we continue to be carbon free and nuclear is seen as one possibility. But I'm kind of like, all right, 60 years on, are we better at this? And I know mm -hmm. the technology is obviously better, but are we as humans better at this? Have we thought out some of the problems that are the big concerns in terms of waste, uh, in terms of accidents, in terms of, you know, what do we know more than we did 60 years ago? Are we a more responsible species than we were 60 years ago. And I'll be honest, I've kind of gone back and forth on this. In December of 2020, I got an email from today's guest, Laura Krantz, asking if I'd be interested in talking to her about her podcast or on her podcast called Wild Thing. And I'll be honest, I get requests like this fairly often. And I know this makes me sound bad, but I turn down most of them. It's just, I'm always busy. I'm always behind on some video and super crunch for time. Plus a lot of them are from people that are kind of just starting a podcast. And I'm like, you know, why don't, why don't you get a few under your belt first and, you know, and then we'll talk. Well, Laura already had two seasons of her podcast out there. So that got me intrigued enough to go check it out. And sure enough, holy crap, this is a really great podcast. Like I, I turned to Wayne and Garth. I'm like, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. So season one was all about Bigfoot and what set her on her journey to cover this story was that she had discovered that she was related to one of the most famous Sasquatch hunters of the 20th century. And she became fascinated by this guy who had just passed away and began researching his life and looking into his work. And suddenly there's this whole story opening up in front of her that she was covering. Um, season two was about aliens and it was just as good. This was what she wanted to talk to me about because in a previous video of mine, I had talked about panspermia, uh, the idea that life came from uh, somewhere else and landed on earth. But now she's about to release season three and this one's about nuclear energy. And this one kind of goes back to the personal connection she had for season one. She actually grew up right next to the site of the deadliest nuclear accident in US history. And it's not what you might think. We get into that in the podcast here. And now I've got my own little podcast, and I wanted to extend my own invitation, so she joined me for an hour or so to talk about her new season, we debate the pros and cons of nuclear power, and she tells me about her background and how it led to her doing what she's doing today. So, with that, I will stop talking. Let's jump into my conversation with Laura Krantz. The most important question. Is it nuclear or nuclear? <laughs> it's nuclear. Yeah, okay. But people have a very, very hard time saying that. <laughs> um, and I'm actually going to do a bonus episode interview on that and actually talk to a linguist and get into why that's such a hard, <laughs> I haven't done that. I haven't done that interview yet, but that is in my head mm -hmm. as something I want to do. It'll be short. It'll probably be like 10 minutes, but I feel like that's one people are going to want to know about. Well, okay. So, so you shared the first episode with me, mm -hmm. maybe we should set up what we're talking about here. We just kind of jumped right into it. But, yeah, um, probably. So, uh, uh, well, I'll do an intro where I kind of give everybody a background on you and whatnot, but, but your, your new series is wild thing season three. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's about nuclear power mm -hmm. and, um, and you share the first episode with me and it just kind of cracked me up how, like, even, even the people who work in it, some of them were still saying nuclear. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, I know very, very educated people 
who say nuclear and it is because like it is a hard it's very nuclear. difficult nuclear. so it's just a, the the consonant sounds together i guess yeah nuclear. Huh. i'm glad that that was your biggest takeaway that was all <laughs> i got from it no i'm kidding i'm kidding no it was great <laughs> interview and, and, over uh, actually so you you really painted a um I guess I, I guess I'm fairly pro nuclear. I never really thought about where I stand mm-hmm. on that specifically, but kind of listening to it, um, I, I did kind of catch myself a few times being like, "Wow, she's really pointing out some negatives here." <laughs> <laughs> and and so um, at the end of the first episode, it kind of just left it kind of like, "This is what we're going to be getting into, and we're going to be looking at it from all the sides and stuff like that." Um, why don't I just let you talk about it and, and what you're, what you're uh, okay with talking about before yeah. this comes out and everything. So, you know, the, the town I grew up in and I get into this in the first episode is 45 minutes from the Idaho national laboratory, which used to be the national reactor testing station, which is where they were testing all of the nuclear reactors, you know, mm-hmm. starting in the late forties into the fifties. Uh, and it's mostly military that's involved in this, but the whole driving force behind it is, um, partially, you know, military stuff, and then partially Eisenhower's Atoms for Peace program, where it's trying to develop these concept of civilian reactors. The problem was all of the technology resided with the military because of the Manhattan Project. So you were never going to completely be able to shed that whole DOD mm-hmm. aspect of it. But if you were a young military man and you were looking to like, you know, make your mark in the newest, latest, most forward-thinking industry with the idea that maybe you'd be able to go on and do uh, nuclear energy on the commercial side of things as those reactors got up and running, this was the place to go. This was the place to go and and work. And so in 1961, you have the army trying to develop these small reactors that they could then put up in the Arctic or in far-flung bases to be able to power them so they didn't have to rely on supply lines for diesel and things like that. Yeah. And this reactor, nice idea in theory, perhaps not well thought out. And And this is 1961? This is 1961. So, you know, we've only really been playing around with nuclear power for about 15, 16 years at this point, we're still pretty new to it. I think we might've been a little bit arrogant about it. Mm. Um, I mean that we've never done that before. So this (laughs) is really a one-off. And so this reactor blows up and there, and three men are killed. It is the deadliest nuclear reactor accident in American history. It still is to this day. Uh, If you ask people- Most people don't know about it. I hadn't really heard about it. Yeah. Most people are like three mile Island and you're like, nobody died. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's just not one we really talk about. I think part of that is the timing of it because in the sixties, that early sixties, we were still very much sort of post-World War II trusting the government, mm-hmm. um, you know, this is the price of progress kind of thing. And by three mile Island, which is almost 20 years later, the tides had, had shifted a little bit. So it's but also I a just, military thing. And those are generally not going to be as, you know, publicized. Right. Although it was everywhere. It was newspapers all over the country had mm. headlines about this. Um, and people really were fascinated by it. But then the other, the comparison I think of is the Roswell incident. So 1947, this happens, there's headlines everywhere. And then it just kind of goes away because the government's like, well, this is what happened. And people are like, okay. Yeah. And then they move yeah. on. Um, so I think there was some parallels there, okay. except there was no aliens involved in this one, obviously. Are you sure? 
No, not entirely. We need to go back to season two. To... <laughs> um, but I found it fascinating that this had happened, you know, 45 minutes from where I grew up. And it's not a story I heard about until I was an adult. Yeah. And then I started reading a little bit more about what they were doing out at the reactor testing station and like all the kinds of crazy experiments. They were blowing up reactors on purpose to sort of test out the tolerances. They were blowing them up on accident because they had miscalculated something. You know, this was just, this was science. This is experimentation. There's a reason they put it out in the desert and, a, and in a part of the desert where nobody lived. Um, and then here we are 60 years later and my town, the, the National Reactor Testing Station is now the Idaho National Laboratory. And they are working with private companies, uh, sort of gen four nuclear reactors, uh, New Scale is the company specifically yeah. to develop these small modular reactors. And Idaho Falls, which is my town, has never been on the receiving end of any of the nuclear power experiments that had gone on in the desert. But this time they will be if everything goes according to plan. They so will this will actually, be powering the town. This will get, they'll get some the power from it. Yeah. They'll not, most of their stuff is actually hydroelectric. Yeah. Um, and Idaho Falls is almost entirely carbon free, which is in terms of electricity because of wind and, mm. and, uh, and hydroelectric, but there's more people moving to that area. So they're trying to think about how do we continue to be carbon free and nuclear is seen as one possibility, but I'm kind of like, all right, 60 years on, are we better at this? And I know mm -hmm. the technology is obviously better, but are we as humans better at this? Have we thought out some of the problems that are the big concerns in terms of waste uh, in terms of accidents, in terms of, you know, what do we know more than we did 60 years ago? Are we a more responsible species than we were 60 years ago? And mm. I'll be honest, I've kind of gone back and forth on this. Um, Russia and Ukraine did not inspire a lot of confidence. I'm yeah. going to be honest. Yeah. And yet I look at Germany and I wonder if they are regretting having shut down all of those nuclear power plants in the wake of Fukushima and, you know, basically doing a deal with the devil when it came to Russia and signing up for the natural gas exports. So it's complicated. Yeah. I feel like it, I sort of went off the rails there, but um, no, no. Um, it's funny because like a lot of the stuff you just talked about, I've covered in a video here and there. I, I talked about mm -hmm. uh, new scale with the uh, is that considered Gen 4? I don't know. I'll be honest. I know the micro reactors that they're working on are considered mm. Gen 4. I'm not sure if new scale fits into that same category but they're the, the design, SMRs, the small modules yeah they're the, yeah. the design okay. is different but i think the underlying technology is still is older stuff is stuff that we've used oh, okay okay for a while there was another one um i want to say it was like ankler no that's a different company marvel what is it oh okla okla yeah i'm yeah, oh, yeah. sorry i'm sorry oklo oklo yeah mm -hmm. uh but but they're if i remember correctly their thing is they're going to take nuclear waste and uh, reprocess it and, and use it to, to like make more energy out it's of it. It's a nice right? idea in theory, politically it has, you know, this is the other question is, it may not be so much should we or shouldn't we, but will we or won't we? And if you look at a lot of the political stuff that's going on in the country, mm -hmm. it might not happen. I mean, there's a lot of states that have said absolutely no nuclear, more nuclear until there is a repository, which we yeah. still don't yeah. have, so. Um, um, although the government is, the DOE is, is heavily like, you know, they're, they're out there being like, who wants it? Raise your hand. You'll get money. You'll get support. You'll get all kinds of stuff, but it is such a hot potato, mm -hmm. radioactively hot. <laughs> <laughs> Don't eat this potato. Yeah. It's not good. Um, for you. 
uh, what is the shoot? I should have uh, Yucca Mountain. That was what it was. Yep. And it's just stalled completely, isn't it? It's done. I mean, I I actually talked to Harry Reid again. Oh. Um, well, I did a twofer. When I interviewed mm -hmm. him for the second season stuff, I also interviewed him for this one because I knew this was a project I wanted to work on. And I also mm -hmm. knew he was ill and might not be around for a while. Yeah. Um, and he did and pass recently, didn't he? He did. He yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he died. It's been about a year, I think. Has it been a year? Yeah. I could be wrong about that. Time is a flat circle. I know. Um, <laughs> These days. <laughs> yeah. But he had that shut down. That was his oh. number one priority when he came into office. Um, first is sort of, you know, a low, low man on the pecking order all the way mm. up to when he became Senate Majority Leader. And that was one of those things. It's like, if you wanted the support of Nevada, you had to come, you had to listen to it all the problems that they had with Yucca Mountain and the idea of Nevada as a waste repository. And then you sure as shit better vote against Yucca Mountain. Mm. So mm. it could be reopened, but I think from a lot of the people I talked to, it needs, they, they're, they're pushing something called consent-based citing right now, which mm. is that the people who are good, you can't force this stuff on a community. The communities have to be like, they have to buy into it. They have to say, yes, we are willing to have this. And that's difficult. I know there are communities in Texas, I believe, who have said, yeah, we'll take it. And then higher up the food chain, you know, with Abbott, they're like, mm. no, we're not taking it. You can't make Texas your dumping ground. So there's a lot of push pull. And I think like anything else until there's some kind of value in it, you know, that, yeah. I, I think that's why I thought it was exciting. The idea that somebody could reprocess the nuclear right. waste and get more energy out of it, because then it would like incentivize people to, you know, store it or do something with it. It also um, lessens the amount. Like if you can go right. in, there's so much, there's like 95% of the uranium is still in that fuel when they're done with it. It's just mm -hmm. that like, it's the way it's packed in there. You have to go in, pull out the uranium, get rid of the like daughter products and then pack everything back together so it can be reused. And you can continue to recycle like that. But because of the plutonium and the byproducts and the concern over dirty bombs yeah. and, you know, it's sort of these, uh, the, the, the risks that people are concerned about, we don't do it. Right. Other countries do, but we don't. Uh, that was, that was a, I don't want to say terrifying, but like just really surprising thing that I, um, that I came across in one of my videos. It's like, <clears throat> all of our nuclear waste is in temporary storage right now. Yeah just kind of sitting around at the, at the reactors themselves, if I'm not mistaken, Yep. with no place to go. And it's just like, yeah. Is it, is it, is, is it Finland that has a plan where they're like digging down and they've got these tunnels and stuff? Finland does have a plan. I think there's opened or it's close to opening. Mm. Don't quote me on that. Cause I don't remember. Well, I'm, I'm quoting myself on that. Um, <laughs> But I don't remember entirely if they have it opened already or if they're still sort of in the phases of, of building it. But yeah, Finland is supposedly like well ahead of everywhere else on dealing with yeah. this. Yeah. The, the optimist in me wants to say, um, you know, the, the immediate problem is the, the carbon in the atmosphere and everything. Uh -huh. And that, that nuclear can be a, a bridge to getting out of that. Um, and that the waste products from nuclear... I mean, we're already coming up with solutions for it and ways of reprocessing it. And who knows in 10 or 20 years, what we might, might come up with. There's some microbes I think they've done tests with that are sort of, they, it will eat nuclear waste. 
and sort of something about that. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way that sort of, you know, sedimentation will eventually sort of concentrate it into, you know, rocks and make it less accessible. Microbes do the same thing. Um, I don't, didn't get, I didn't do all the details on this. That may end up being a sort of follow-up bonus episode. There's uh, only so much time in the day, Joe. You may not know this. I've, but... I've, I've heard, yeah. <laughs> uh, how many episodes is this series? So it's nine main story episodes. And then there will be, um, I don't know how many bonus sort of extra interviews. Those will be for my premium subscribers. <laughs> Wildthingpodcast.com. Sign up for Wild Thing Plus. <laughs> more wild thing <laughs> <laughs> wild things right sorry yeah um shoot there was a question around the tip of my tongue Where'd it go? oh we were talking about um you know the it seems like they're like carbon is the immediate concern yeah yeah i mean where'd you wind up landing on that after researching this for all this time you know i still have gone back and forth on this because i really climate change is like that shit's coming and it's coming mm. fast and we need to figure out ways to get off of fossil fuels. Energy independence is important. Um, and honestly, I think if I had to make a decision today, I would say, let's, let's keep trying with nuclear. I mm. think the benefits outweigh the costs. Um, but I understand where people are coming from. I understand the concerns. I understand the sort of, you know, um, the, these long life, isotopes that persist in the environment for, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years mm -hmm. and concerns over future generations. I just feel like to your point that the technology is going to continue to improve and people are going to find a way to deal with this and holding off on this and hoping that solar and wind will fill those gaps um, that we need for energy. I just don't think that's going to, going to do it. And the other interesting that, thing that came up in these conversations. So I spent about three days at the Idaho national laboratory doing tours. I saw a lot of stuff that, you know, I, I was kind of like impressed with, like they're thinking about how, if everybody gets an electric car, you're going to have to get that power source from somewhere. Most people are going to be charging their car at night solar is not going to be as available until we improve battery capability. Um, wind is intermittent again with battery capability. So that has to improve. And that's going to be a huge draw on energy systems. Nuclear is something that could provide that sort of steady baseload that power. Baseload. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah. but then I see what happened with Chernobyl and Ukraine and, uh, the Russians, I forget the name of the other plant that they were targeting with missiles. And you're like, well, that's, that's not good. It is a big target. Yeah, exactly. Stuff like that. And, you know, if we were rational beings, I would say, yeah, hundred percent, let's do nuclear. But the, the sort of, you know, non-rational actor aspect of humanity makes me a little bit wary of it. <laughs> and the tendency to like kick problems down the road. Yeah. which is what we've done with the waste thing. I mean, the government, prog they promised in, I'm trying to remember what year it was, was it 1982 that they did the Nuclear Waste Act where they were saying, you know, we're going to have two repositories. Um, they picked these sites entirely based on politics, but they said, yes, you know, all of these companies that are doing nuclear, all of us who get power 
from nuclear are paying into a fund to help set up a waste repository and have been paying into that fund for decades now. And we still don't have anything. We still have not solved this problem. And I'm like, are we ever going to solve that problem? That's yeah. the question I have. Well, the kick the can down the road strategy is definitely an American tradition. Yeah. Of, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how we wound up in the environmental situation we are now. Exactly. You know, um, I, I had a thought that uh, I thought I would just share in, in terms of like uh, a solution to the radioactivity problem in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, way back when I did um, an interview with uh, Andy Weir. He's, oh, become, he's uh, become a bit of a friend. Yeah, he he he. This is the Martian guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard, I've heard of him. I mean, he's, he's not a Martian, but he wrote the book. Yeah, yeah. Are you sure? Um, <laughs> yeah. He does think very differently. I'll put it that way. Um, mm-hmm. But no, I was asking him about the the radiation problem on long term space flights. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even just going to the moon and getting outside of our environment or our uh, magnetic Atmosphere. sphere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's the big problem going to, to Mars and just being exposed to the, the solar radiation and the cosmic rays from galaxies and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and his, he said his solution, well, not his solution, but a solution to uh, the radiation problem is just uh, curing cancer. Okay. So <laughs> I, I don't think anyone's been working on that yet. No, yeah, they need to get on that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but the point being like, yeah. If we actually were able to cure cancer, maybe the radiation wouldn't be a problem. That's an interesting point. Like the fact that we can cure it means that, oh, you get sick with it, but then we can fix it. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by CuriosityStream. So season three of Wild Thing is about the perils of nuclear power. And if that's something that you're interested in, there's a few different shows you should check out on there, including Countdown to Catastrophe, which is about how seismic activity led to the incident at Fukushima, or the show Meltdown, analyzing the radiation leaks, which tries to get to the bottom of how much radiation escaped during Fukushima. And last but not least, Decommissioning Fukushima, which is, um, well, it's about the decommissioning of Fukushima. There's, there's a lot of Fukushima on CuriosityStream. And that's just for one news story. Imagine what the rest of the catalog of CuriosityStream looks like. In fact, you can find hundreds of documentary series from some of the best filmmakers from around the world. If you like space stuff, you'll never run out of interesting stuff to watch. More into history, same, art, science, we could keep going. It's all in CuriosityStream. But you know what comes next? With your subscription to CuriosityStream, you get for free access to Nebula, the streaming service I'm a part of, as well as many of your favorite smart YouTubers. Well, you can see our stuff ad-free and earlier than everybody else, meaning this podcast on Nebula wouldn't have this ad that you're probably wanting to skip past at this point. And you can get all that from both services for the ridiculously low price of $14.79 for an entire year. I did the math, actually. It comes out to $0.62 cents per month per service, and you'll never run out of amazing content to watch. So yeah, to get all that, just go to curiositystream.com slash Pod. Again, curiositystream.com slash Pod, and you can start the process of wondering why the hell you waited so long to sign up for this thing. Good Lord. And because science says you got to hear something three times before you remember it, that's curiositystream.com slash Pod. So go check it out, and thanks to CuriosityStream for supporting this podcast. Now, back to Laura. We went out to where this old, you know, uranium yellow cake mines are because the Colorado Plateau where I live is like full of that stuff. And we were just talking about like background radiation and how, where you live changes. It 
how much radiation you get depends on where you live and like, are you at sea level? Are you at, mm. you know, at high altitude? Do you live near where there are a lot of uranium deposits, like all this kind of stuff. And yeah, the background stuff's really interesting because what there was a couple of studies that were done in 2018, I think, where they took microbes deep underground, where there was almost no background radiation. They tried to limit it as much as they possibly could. And they wanted to see how these microbes would fare, thinking that without radiation at all, they might thrive. And it turns out that they did not do well. They actually, hmm. where there was a little bit of failure to thrive. Um, so there's an element of, you know, we're a long way from seeing what that means for humans, yeah. but if we have been exposed to radiation throughout time immemorial, as long as this planet has been around and evolution has been happening, then radiation may actually play more of a role besides mutation um, than we've thought in terms hmm. of like human or evolutionary development. Yeah, I mean, there there is a certain amount of radiation like you said, background radiation around, and we evolved in that. So yeah, we've evolved with that more than just about anything else. So huh. yeah, it's just, it's interesting. There's a lot of like cool stuff that's related to this that um, I had not really thought about before and sort of puts some of the radiation question into perspective in terms of exposure as well. I mean, I realize that there is an amount beyond which you are going to get sick, but up to that point, you know, they're still sort of debating, like, where is the line? What is the line? And it probably varies depending on who you are in mm -hmm. the same way, you know, that you'll, some people get sick from certain things and not from others. COVID is like a good example of this. Some people never, it, you know, even no mm -hmm. matter how much they expose, they never really got sick versus others who now have these like long-term effects. So, yeah. Yeah. And I always think about whenever I'm, I'm on a plane flight, they say, you know, like a coast to coast flight, you get a certain oh, yeah. amount of radiation and stuff. And, you know, the, the, the paranoid, you know, hypochondriac in me is like, oh, I need to wear a lead vest on the plane or something. You know? <laughs> but, but I mean, there's, there's flight attendants hat. and pilots that. Yeah. Do it all the time. Uh, every single day, you know? Yeah. So I actually worked in an airport one time at a, um, at a, like one of those restaurants in the terminals. I used to call it a terminal restaurant, but it sounds like you go to there to die or something. Um, <laughs> I'd like the euthanasia with a side. Yeah. Of, uh, strict nine. Plug me in. <laughs> um, but no, like that cured me of any, uh, I'm, this is a bit of a tangent. Uh, that cured me <laughs> of any flight phobias that I once had uh -huh. because I didn't realize just how many, like in that, in that one gate where we were stationed, there were like seven, eight flights a day going out of that mm -hmm. one gate out of 40 in that term or 40 in that uh, hub or whatever. And that was like one of four terminals at DFW airport. And, you know, now I think there's six. And it was just kind of like, I just started thinking, I started doing the numbers about like how many flights there are every day. And, and it was just like, wow, it's like infinitesimally small that something, you know, right. terrible happens. There was um, an, so speaking of interesting books that I read, this one was a while ago. Do you know who Siddhartha Mukherjee is? Yo, no. He he wrote a book. He writes. He's an oncologist. Okay. He's he's a real slacker. He is both a well, a very very good doctor, and he writes books. And for the New Yorker, I mean, just no yeah. talent, no talent at all. Um, but he's <laughs> written a couple of books. One was called Emperor of Maladies, which was about cancer. Yeah. And another one's called The Gene, which gets into like mutation and how the genes work and all this other stuff. Both are excellent books. They're long uh -huh. and some of them are, they're parts that are fairly dense, but really, really good. But he mm -hmm. also wrote an article about cancer for the New Yorker um, talking about seed and soil 
and how, if you think of cancer as the seed and your body as the soil, you know, in the same way that when you're planting in the garden, things have to, conditions have to be right for something to flourish. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, like conditions have to be right or wrong, I guess, in this case, in your body for cancer to flourish. And it was just a really interesting perspective on that. Um, Hmm. You know, I don't think it's dogma, but it was a way to think about it. That's a little bit different than some of the statistics. And so basically making the argument that if you change the soil mm-hmm. <laughs> in your body, it will reduce the conditions that make cancer thrive. Yeah, potentially. Um, it, there was an example he gave, and I'm probably going to get the details of this wrong, but it was essentially a guy who had had some sort of cancer early in life, had beat it back and had been in remission so long that he was actually available to, uh, to he was, he was able to give a kidney. I think it was a kidney cancer of some sort, but he was able to donate a kidney. Oh, okay. um, he does so. And the person who gets the kidney gets the cancer. Oh my God. Are you serious? Yeah. And you know, something in the genes, something in the body, something in the chemistry had shifted there. And I should find this and send it to you because I may be getting the details all wrong. And I do not want to mis- mislead your mm. viewers, listeners, fans. That's the journalist in you. <laughs> yeah. Must get the facts right. But it was, it's really interesting to think about those kinds of things and realize that a lot of stuff is very case by case, even though yeah. we try to be like, you know, you have to simplify it. You can't make policy on a case by case basis. You can't do healthcare on a case by case basis. Mm-hmm. It's just too complicated, but yeah. it, life is a case by case basis. Ooh, I like that quote. Yeah. I'm going to um, get on a t-shirt. <laughs> Life is a case back. Um, so, okay. So I think I want to say it was Ken Burns, but somebody did a documentary series that must've been based on that book because it was called the, the emperor of all maladies. Oh, okay. And it was about cancer through the years and how yeah. it's been treated and the, the, the progress has been made and the setbacks and everything. Mm-hmm. It was the biggest roller coaster yeah. of a documentary. And, and I want to say they're like four episodes or something. But, I didn't know they'd made one, but I will look for that because it's an amazing book. I feel pretty sure it was Ken Burns because when I saw later that it was Ken Burns, I'm like, of course it was because it was so well done. <laughs> but um, I mean, every time there was some progress and this might have just been the storytelling, you know, he's mm-hmm. just a good storyteller, but it was like every time there was some progress, and you're like, oh, that's the thing. That's the thing. And if we can fix that thing, then we've got it. And we know how to fix that thing. Oh, there's this other thing um yeah. you know and then, and then it like it was just up and down and it was just like every time there was a glimmer of hope there was something else like, ah <laughs> and it was it was a roller coaster yeah um, but one of the things that got me sorry it's tangent again but um that's what we do so it's, it's all about yeah um no it was talking about like in the old the old old days i guess like victorian times or whatever people would just like if, if your aunt had cancer they would just oh. like put her up in the attic oh really yeah so maybe a little bit past that, the, when they started doing surgery, they mm. would like remove all of the muscles and like, um, every, like if it was breast cancer, they'd take out the breast, they'd take yeah. out the muscles, they'd go all the way up in the arm. Like it was, oh my God, the excavation that they did was mm-hmm. horrific. Scorched earth. Yeah. Yeah. Awful. Would so, that be uh, pre or post anesthetic? I really hope it was post. Yeah. Um. God, there's 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 some scenes in movies that are that are based in like pre-anesthetic times where it shows surgery and uh-huh. it's just like it's it's horrifying i'm so glad i live when i do yeah, yeah well for that reason anyway for that reason 
yeah um but anyway no um that was that was an amazing documentary series and uh but no yeah uh sorry i started going but like it was almost like a I don't want to say curse, but it was like when it was, it was a shameful thing if somebody got mm-hmm. cancer. And of course it was called consumption back then, I think. So that was tuberculosis. Oh, that was tuberculosis. Okay. Well, anyway. Um, but yeah, it was a shameful thing. That. Being sick is a, was a shameful thing. If you were sick, it's because you had kind of done something wrong. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, it was just, it was like, yeah, if somebody had cancer. It's like, well, let's just uh, put them in the back room over there and, <laughs> and, you know, don't let anybody see them. Cause yeah. Yeah. Glad we've come a long way since then. Um, so what kind of, uh, in, in your, in your research, was there like certain types of cancers that people would get from this kind of radiation or anything? Did you even go down that path too much? I did a little bit. I didn't go too far into those details. Um, partially just because it starts to get so into the weeds and partially because there, you know, there are cancers that they can definitively chalk up to, uh, exposure to radioactive materials. Yeah. Thyroid cancer tends to be like one of the top ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are others where, you know, this stuff doesn't start to appear for 20 or 30 years down the road. And then it's a question of, you know, where do you live? Do you live at high altitude? Mm-hmm. Because that also you're getting a different kind of radiation exposure. Do you smoke? Um, you know, what's the air like where you are? Do you have a history of cancer in your family? Like there's all these other elements that get pulled in, which makes it harder to say definitively that this cancer was caused by exposure to these uranium mm. particles back in 1983. So yeah, I know there the the Idaho National Laboratory and the Department of Energy does provide medical assistance, uh, money, care to people who have cancers that are specifically linked to radiation exposure, but they don't do it for all cancers. And I think that's part of the reason. Um, thyroid is the one I know off the top of my head. I know there are others. I think they, they have very long and complicated names and I don't remember them specifically, Yeah, but there are a collection of them. Okay. Um, that was just a little bit of a tangent. I wanted to touch on if you uh, got into Gen 4, nuclear stuff very much. I learned a little bit about the micro reactors, but it's more like how they would be used as opposed mm-hmm. to like the inner workings of them. Same thing. Like I know, you know, there's the Terra power stuff that's going on Terra in Kimmerer yeah. and Wyoming. Um, there is, I think they're doing some other gen four stuff at the Idaho national laboratory. Um, but I don't know the ins and outs of how they work. Um, I should make a full confession in that I was not a science major. (laughs) The last time I took physics was when I was a junior in high school. I did not do well. Uh, I never took chemistry (laughs) for shame. Um, And I find science interesting, but I also have, I find it very intimidating. So you know your limitations. I know my limitations and I wanted to learn about this stuff to do this podcast, but I wasn't going to be able to do it to the depth that I think some of probably your more um, science educated Mm. people will be. Like there was a lot of like, I was like, I don't really know what an atom is, which sounds dumb and probably is, but I really was like, I wanna understand what this thing is because Mm. if I don't understand what it is and I don't understand what it means to split it, 
And I don't understand what that process is. So there is a fair amount of that kind of stuff in the podcast, which is fairly 101. Mm -hmm. And for people who have a lot of education and background in this stuff, they're going to probably be rolling their eyes. Um, but this I'll is, defend you it's real my quick podcast. No, that's, that's, <laughs> I always say like, if I'm good at what I do, it's because mm -hmm. I have to learn it myself. And if I right. can get myself to understand it, then I can get other people to understand it. And sometimes right. you kind of have to step all the way back mm -hmm. to kind of paint the full picture and be like, here's how this all lines up and, and yeah. everything. So, so don't, don't, don't put yourself down on that. I think, I think that's an important part of it, frankly. Yeah. And you know, again, like, as you said, I can't explain it to someone else if I can't understand it myself. So there was, <laughs> I talked to this guy who teaches nuclear um, physics at Florida International University. He was recommended by a friend of mine as being someone who could sort of explain this to the layman, because a lot of the scientists I talked to, they've just been so steeped in it for so long that they don't even realize they're using jargon. But this guy, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he teaches freshmen, he teaches classes that are not aimed at science majors. So he, poor guy, he must've spent like five hours on the phone with me. Um, and there's maybe like 20, like maybe, you know, 10 minutes of him talking in the entire podcast yeah. total, but it helped me understand it. And mm -hmm. it's really cut down to some of the bare bones that you need to get through this particular podcast. I know I missed a lot of the other nuances, but I, you know, I ran my scripts by people to make sure that I was being scientifically accurate. Everything's been fact-checked. So Mm -hmm. Yeah, but um, all that to say that the Gen 4 stuff, I sort of am aware of it, but I do not know, like if you were like, how's a sodium cooled reactor work? I'm going right. to be like, they use salt. <laughs> <laughs> they squeeze sodium out of- I don't know uh, why that works. And, yeah. <laughs> soy sauce, a lot of soy sauce. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I always knew there was something in that soy sauce that could- yeah. uh, um, no, I was asking because I, I actually have a, a video that I've been kind of outlining recently about Gen 4. So I didn't know if there was anything here that would tie in together with that or not. But. I will look forward to watching it and learning. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> um, well, you were just talking about fact checking and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. Um, I wanted to get into your background a little bit um, yeah. if, you, if you're ready to move off of the nuclear stuff. But sure. I mean, you, you have a journalism background, right? Yeah. Uh, I worked for NPR in DC and in Los Angeles. I've written for a few magazines. Um, yeah, I've, I've been doing journalism since 2006. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a while. Okay. That's all you want um, to say about it? Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the thing is, is I never intended to be a journalist. Um, oh, okay. I was living in, I graduated from college. I'd gone to DC to do an internship. 9-11 uh, happened and I could not get a job. And so I bounced around to a lot of sort of like, I worked at a bookstore for a while. I worked at a children's yeah. museum. Um, and then somehow I managed to write the kind of cover letter that landed me a job at a think tank called the Stimson Center and doing chemical and biological weapons nonproliferation research. Um, which so is kind of coming full circle a little bit. It kind of is. Uh, okay. And they did a lot of nuclear stuff there as well, although I wasn't involved <clears throat> in that side of things. And then we were also working on Homeland Security because everybody was working on Homeland Security at the time. Yeah. It was 2001. There was money pouring out of the faucets. Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, with the, we're ramping up for war in Iraq and all the rest of that good stuff. Um, I didn't have any background in that stuff other than I really enjoyed reading The Hot Zone, which is an excellent book. And uh, also uh, Laurie Garrett's book, The Coming Plague, which I think came out, came out in like the mid to late 90s, which if you want to read some about some terrifying diseases, I would recommend it. Fun. So 
but I ended up working for this group. And then to sort of move up the ladder, you had to get a master's degree. Mm-hmm. And so I dutifully went off to get my master's degree, thinking I would live the think tank life and just sort of, you know, be in my office and read interesting things about one very narrow topic and write papers about it. <laughs> and I realized when I got back to school that what I really liked was school. What I really liked was learning stuff. What I really mm-hmm. liked was sort of exploring a topic for a set period of time and just getting that knowledge and then moving on to something else. And that is not think tank world. So then I was like, well, what jobs can I do that with? And it was like politics, no thank you, and journalism. So I went with journalism. I applied for an internship at NPR when I was still finishing up grad school. Uh, Again, I think I wrote a really good cover letter. I'm very good at cover letters (laughs) and uh, got the gig. And then when my internship ended, I basically just refused to leave, leave the building. And I took on temporary positions, you know, someone would go on vacation and I'd be like, I'll fill in like that kind of stuff until they finally gave me a job. Um, and it, it really, journalism is a lot of fun in that way because you are constantly learning new stuff and getting new information. It is very much, uh, inch deep mile wide, as they say, like you just, Mm. you have a lot of information about a lot of things or a little bit of information about a lot of things, which makes you fun at cocktail parties and, does not make you fun. Yeah, exactly. Um, does not make you fun in a really deep policy conversation because you quickly run out of. <laughs> well, deep of, policy of conversations are known to be really fun in general. They so. are. They are. <laughs> <laughs> but no, same same um, thing for me. Like I, I've covered a million different topics to a very shallow level, and I, mm-hmm. I like to think that maybe that helps me to connect some dots that maybe other people can't do if there gives me if that gives me any kind of superpower or whatever. But. Um, that, that's that's what I enjoy about doing what I do is just like learning about stuff and yeah kind of and I think deep dives there are connections to be made which I think when you're exploring you know wide swaths of society and a whole bunch of different topics you start to see where there are echoes from other areas and you know pulling on threads that are very very similar mm-hmm. um so it's like being a spider with a nice web <laughs> <laughs> also when in your in your previous journalistic efforts uh-huh I was kind of curious how different or similar that is doing the podcast. There are some similarities from the standpoint of like a lot of the skills I learned at NPR in terms of, you know, how to use a microphone and how to not talk when the other person is talking, which Mm. has, you know, things like that. Um, The kinds of questions to think about planning in advance, learning how to find subjects that are good at explaining things and are, are dynamic talkers, as we call them. Um, those are skills that have definitely been transferred over to what I'm currently doing. Uh, I did not learn the business side of things over there. So that has been, that's been a, a steep learning curve in terms of figuring out like, how do I do all these other things that at a big company, someone does them for you. There are departments that do that kind of stuff. Um, But I think the fact checking and the importance of making sure that things are clear and concise and that, you know, ultimately I'm a proxy for the listener. I have to stand in for them and think of the questions they might have and figure out where the holes are in a story so I can fill those and make it a, a good story that answers these questions rather than just sort of a hodgepodge of information. Um, That's, that's, I think one of the things I learned at NPR as well. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I've been having some brain farts today. <laughs> like twice now that I like had a question and then it just vanished the second I started asking. They make this thing called pen and paper. And you can take a pen. I tried that <laughs> I earlier. It's so, and... it's so old fashioned. I guess. Um, oh, what I started to say was like, I, I remember having an IT department. Oh, at, yeah. At an old job. And then uh -huh. when you go and sort of freelance on your own or do your own things, suddenly it's like, you've got to figure out what the problem is with your computer today. Mm -hmm. And uh, usually it's just, I'm just going to toss it and buy a new computer. Mine um, has been freezing every hour, roughly within the same couple of minutes for a year now. And I have been so mired in projects that I'm like, I can't give up the computer. So mm -hmm. I've been sort of like working around it for a while. But the minute these projects are done, this thing's going off to get repaired. Yeah. Yeah. I've, no I've just gotten to where, here. like, I, I guess I'm like the old man now. It's like, can somebody come over here and fix Where's <laughs> the grandkids to come fix my computer? Because, yeah. like, I yeah. just, I mean, I could figure it out myself, but that's literally an entire day wasted. Uh huh. Totally. And when I've got a video coming out on Monday, I just don't have time to deal with it. No, exactly. You know? My niece and nephew are currently one and almost four. And I'm like, you guys can't grow up soon enough. Hurry up, chop, chop. <laughs> come on, come on, come on. Get off TikTok. Auntie Laura needs some help. Yeah. <laughs> Is it plugged in? Yes, it's plugged in. <laughs> Have you turned it off and turned it back on? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, many times. No, I wanted to to kind of have the, the journalism conversation with you because we're, we're in an yeah. interesting place in journalism right now. Hmm. And I was curious as somebody who has spent 20 years or so in that world, like what, what your take is on the fracturing of our media, I guess. Well, that's a big conversation. We don't have to go. Too yeah, far there are, there are kind of a lot of elements that feed into this. Um, one of them is sort of lack of trust in experts, which right. I think happens because of things that have happened on both sides of the divide. One is that experts don't always do things that make people want to trust them. <laughs> Um, and the flip side is people who just don't trust any authority whatsoever mm -hmm. and stop. Uh, and there's this been sort of diminishment of education, expertise. Those kinds of people are elite. They're out of touch. They don't understand your problems. But, you know, to have someone who has spent 40 years studying epidemiology and then they get dismissed as being stooges of the government or you know they don't know what they're talking about by someone who has never studied epidemiology and has only done cursory research on the internet that is problematic um i think some of this also goes back to the is it the fair fair standards act mm. again i'm forgetting the the name of this this was under reagan essentially which is when once upon a time, when you were doing broadcast news, you had to present the other side of the argument. Right. You yeah, had yeah, to yeah, present yeah. both sides of an argument and you had to do it in a way that was factually correct. When that Fair Practices or Fair Standards Act was, which was they got rid of it, mm -hmm. that opened the door for all kinds of disinformation, that, that opened the door for allowing people to present only one side of an issue without being more... What's the word I'm looking for? It's just they bias. You could, a lot of bias. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Bias. That was a tough one to come up with. <laughs> Four letters. Four letters. <laughs> and 
that has only gotten worse. Yeah. And with the internet, which for all of its good has ended up being a place where people can go deeply into their biases and never even see any other perspective. Mm -hmm. And that is problematic. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that makes journalism a harder industry on the whole, because you're fighting against that. And a lot of what draws people in sort of tickles those, you know, these very sort of reptilian mm -hmm. aspects of your brain, uh, fires yeah, emotional, of anger. emotional activation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I feel like journalists have to kind of play that game now in order yeah. to be relevant and get seen in the, the, the internet world, the you know, social media world that we're in, they have to totally. play with the clickbait and, and I hate that. I hate yeah. like, what's going to, what's going to get people's attention. What's going to be catchy. What's going to like, but I understand that that's, that I don't know, that's the way the world works now. So then it's, you know, journalists yeah. start doing that and then it just feeds into it more. And it's sort of the cycle, but if you don't do that, then people aren't reading your material or listening to it. And then the information that you might have in the story itself, which might be very good and useful, doesn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, this is, yeah. this is the problem. And I don't know, I don't know how you back away from this honestly. Yeah. I get, I get a little depressing or depressive about it. Cause it's like, yeah, there's, there's no putting that genie back in the bottle. Mm -mm. Um, I didn't study journalism mm -hmm. every once in a while. Somebody will call me a journalist on YouTube and I'm like, don't, that's a, that's an insult to actual journalists, you know, <laughs> and, but for real though, cause, um, I, I didn't study it, but I did work in a newspaper for 12 years. Well, that's and, a journalist though. I didn't study it either. My graduate program was international relations and economics. Like <laughs> it, you know, it wasn't journalism. And I, to be honest, I think of journalism as a trade yeah. and less of a, you know, an academic exercise simply because you learn the most by doing it mm -hmm. and from people who have been doing it for years and can teach you like, what is a good source, how to fact check, how to think about things, how to write you know, it, it is so much more of a craft than it is a, you know, here, learn this in a classroom kind yeah. of thing. So I would say you're a journalist. Mm. But, but there are like standards in, in a process, like you said, like the mm -hmm. fact checking and the, you know, like there's, it, whether you learn it on the job or whether you learn it like in a, an academic setting, mm -hmm. um, I, I, I do sort of make a correlation there between the journalistic practice of like getting to the truth and the scientific practice of having a scientific process with peer review and everything to get to the truth. They're both different ways of trying to get to the truth. Right. Um, and society as a whole has lost its, its trust in both. Yeah. Um, there, there's, there's some friends of mine. I got a handful of friends and I hear it on, in my comments a lot too, but like people are just like, there's just, there's just no source of information you can trust anymore. And I'm like, but there's still, there's still standards. There's, that, that there's organizations. That too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's organizations that can, that have like um, sort of an industry. Um, now I'm failing in my words, but, but they, they, but they can set like the, who is it that does that chart that has the bias, the level of bias and misinformation? Oh, uh, uh, pointer. Is it point? No, it's um, PolitiFact. Am I thinking? It might thinking be PolitiFact. There might be a few different people that do it, but but, but, there, but there are people that like maintain those sort of standards. Yeah. And um, I don't know where I'm going with this, except that like, there, I, I don't agree that you can't trust anybody anymore. I don't either. But, but I think you just have to be cognizant that there's bias in certain places and you have to just kind of 
factor that in, you know? Yeah. I, you know, as much as I, <clears throat> the whole trust, but verify, like there's, there's something to that. Um, I, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I think <laughs> this is, it's such a hard thing to think about and try to get people to realize that, you know, everything we do is a human exercise. There, will, there is nothing that is objective except for maybe gravity um, and the laws of physics, but that's even objective to like the human species, like some mm -hmm. alien species could be like, no, that's not how that works at all. So who knows? Yeah, but my gravity. point, yeah. My point being that you have to take into account that the person writing this may have some biases, but you can also look at multiple sources and see what threads are appearing again and again. Uh, mm -hmm. What are you seeing again and again that come from trustworthy, reliable sources? And you can kind of piece together what the actual truth might be um, without necessarily having to rely entirely on just one source. And then when that source fails you on one or two occasions, dismiss them outright. Like mm -hmm. people have to be willing to do some of the work themselves. And I think that's where we fall down is we expect this stuff to be spoon fed to us. And we also have preconceived notions of what we want the world to be. And when the article comes out that doesn't back that up, we, a lot of people get upset. And I see mm -hmm. this across the spectrum. I've got friends on the left and on the right, and I see that everywhere. So yeah. And you know, what is it? Truth always lies somewhere in the middle. Like I think there's some element of that, mm -hmm. but you have to be willing to do some of your own you have to look into things a little bit harder and be a little bit more critical about the thinking and be like, well, who wrote this? Why did they write it? Who is backing this? Um, is this coming from yeah. an industry trade group? Is this coming from a journalist? Is this coming from a disgruntled employee? Like, where is this information coming from? And kind of piece together from multiple source sources what the, what the actual thing might be. And even then you're not necessarily gonna know the entire truth, but you're gonna have a sense of it. Yeah, yeah. Problem is most people barely even look past the headline. And oh, the headlines are feed. so bad. The the writer, the the reporters don't even write the headlines. Someone right. else is doing that for the clickbait aspect that mm -hmm. you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Actually, YouTube is getting really weird right now. Oh, really? Yeah. <clears throat> I may have to do a TMI episode on it or something, but um I think it's a combination of first of all, it's spring and people are going outside and not spending as much time on YouTube anymore. Um, I think there's, there's a bit of a dip every spring, but um, you know, like Netflix just posted a loss. Yeah. And, and now there's all this talk about, have we reached peak streaming? There's like a million streaming services out there right now. And that's kind of competition for YouTube. And so they're, I feel like they're kind of grasping at straws with their algorithm, trying to, trying to keep people on the platform or whatever. And like mm -hmm. I go into my recommended feed and it's just the most clickbait misleading stuff. Yeah, that's and frustrating. There's, there's a couple of channels that just keep getting recommended to me. It's like they are just pounding it down my throat. Like you have to watch this video. And, and it's, there's a couple of channels that like every single thumbnail has Elon Musk in it, regardless of whether he has anything to do with the subject at all. And, and it, it's, it's always like, finally, it finally happened or shocking oh, yeah. new blah, 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 you know? And um, I, I need to come up with a good name for this because there's, there's legit bait mm -hmm. where it's like, I think I actually talked about this in my last interview on here. Clearly it's a theme. Um, clearly it's just like <laughs> in my head, 
but uh yeah. there, there's like catchy uh clickbaity titles but they still tie into what the video is and it's not being misleading uh-huh. or saying anything that's untrue and then there's like just straight up tease bait where it's like you know this kid got some scissors wouldn't happen next will blow your mind kind of thing you know yeah and then um, this one pill will fix all of your ailments says yeah, doctor. doctors hate him yeah yeah and and then there's this new one that's like <sighs> hate bait or yeah. like anger bait or something where it's just they're they're saying something that's patently untrue mm-hmm. clearly untrue and the only reason to click it is to see just how badly this video is going to lie to you yeah don't click it don't click it don't click but, it but there is this weird reptilian urge them. to I like know. i know yeah i have started to be better about like i see that stuff and i'm like not clicking and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm overcoming that urge, but it's not easy. I mean, everybody has it. Mm-hmm. And, but yeah, I think the less we click on that stuff. The less well, it's, it's, will, it's a new know. type of manipulation that I hadn't seen before. Yeah. I that's hate bait is not good. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like you only click on it because you know, they're going to be lying to you. You just want to see how bad they're lying. Yeah. It's a weird, it's a weird thing, but you still but compelled then once to look. You, once you've clicked on that, then they keep serving you more of that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, exactly. you, you've seen those studies, <clears throat> excuse me. You've seen those studies that they've done or like the sort of experiments where it's like watching one, you know, one person watches a video and then like, there's that whole list of, of recommended videos on the side mm-hmm. and they click on another one that and it just sort of like sends them deeper and deeper into these like very dark internet places. And it's like, yeah. wow. Yeah. And it happens a lot. And then all of a sudden you have people who are completely like polarized, who were fairly centrist mm-hmm. before. I want, sorry, I just, I wanted to go into your, um, how you got the podcast started though. Oh, okay. Cause, cause you, you first, here's my, here's my story is you reached out to me to do like one of those extra episodes for the season two mm-hmm. for the, the alien thing. And like you said, there's a million podcasts. So I hadn't heard about it at that point. Uh, but I was like, I'm curious about this. And I checked it out and I listened to the, um, to the, the first uh, series, the first season about the Bigfoot mm-hmm. Sasquatch mm-hmm. friggin' loved it. And, and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. So of course I was like, yeah, let's do this. Um, but it's, it's funny. Cause like I'm, I'm putting two and two together. Cause in the first one, it kind of got started down that path because of your uncle Grover. Yeah. Grandfather's cousin, but yeah. Oh, okay. For Yeah. Re- a relative, you know, a relative I did. yeah yeah so and, oh go ahead well it's just going to tie it back into the this this season you were talking about all this stuff kind of happened near where you grew up and I was wondering mm-hmm. how much of your decision making and in, in picking these subjects have to do with just sort of your own life and and things that that happened to you and so that kind of piqued your interest and you kind of went down the rabbit hole and next thing you know you're doing a, a podcast about it yeah that's I mean that's partially true so first season that Actually, I learned about Grover. It was like 2006, and I was reading the Washington Post. I was still living in D.C. at the time, and Grover had donated his bones and the bones of his dogs to the Smithsonian, and they were going to be putting them on display. And I was like, "Well, this is really weird," uh, and started reading the article because it just sort of captured my interest. Plus, the guy had the same last name. Uh-huh. And then um, there's this like throwaway paragraph about he how he would drive around the Pacific Northwest looking for Sasquatch with a spotlight and a rifle. And at that point, I'm like, wow, this guy is really strange. 
And I think I might be related to him because his family's from Salt Lake City, which is where my dad's family was from. And so okay. I verified all this. Yes, he was my grandfather's cousin. I remember cutting out, my grandfather was still alive at the time. I remember cutting out the article and mailing it to my grandfather, or I made it to my parents. And my grandfather, who was fairly elderly at the time, just loved it. My dad gave it to him and he would like show it to every visitor that came and like, he just was fascinated by the story. So mm -hmm. That was pretty fun, but it was not a story I really knew what to do with for a while. I just kind of sat on it. It was kind of fun to trot out at cocktail parties. I could bring when people came to town, I'd be like, do you want to go see my cousin who's in the Smithsonian? And <laughs> ha, you know, everyone would laugh. Ha 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 ha. You know, everyone's got cousins in the Smithsonian. I'm like, not like this. So actually, um, let me, let me share the screen and show everybody what you're talking yeah. about. This is, this is amazing and kind of creepy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh yeah he he had his his bones this is in the smithsonian right here him and his dog mm -hmm. in the smithsonian yeah it's really cool it's a and it's still there um it's i think the display he's in right now is he's in a classroom um that they use for the school groups that come in and i think they're doing some refurbishing in there because we uh -huh. were just in dc and we tried to go see him but it was closed down but yeah, he's, he's still in the classroom and it's, it's pretty cool. It was really cool to see it the first time. You're just like, whoa. Well, it's, it, it's, it's sweet because like, we've all had a dog that we loved and, and it's mm -hmm. like, that's just so that's, that's heartwarming, but, but also like, yikes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I first saw that, I was like, wow. Um, Sorry, go on. I just wanted to share that with everybody. Yeah, no, it is it is really cool to see it, and I tell everyone who goes to DC to go find Grover. So, but I just sat on the story for ten years. I was still working at NPR, and then I got a fellowship at the University of Colorado Boulder for mid career journalists to basically they pay you an adult salary to go and learn for a year, and you don't have to take tests or do homework. Which I mean, oh, is there great. anything better? It's great. Yeah. And then once I finished that, I was like, I don't want to go back to the daily news. I'd been a little burned out on that. It was just sort of a grind at that point. And a lot of the fun that I'd initially had with journalism had felt like it had been drained away by just this sort of like constant churn. Mm -hmm. So I tried my hand at magazine writing. I am not great at it. Uh, <laughs> writers use a lot of adjectives, which I didn't do. I was used to writing for radio and you strip out a lot oh, of the sort yeah. of extraneous stuff. So then I would write these drafts. I would give them to Scott, my husband, because he is a, also a writer and I would have him sort of look things over and he'd be like, you need so much more description in here. And I'm like, there are like four adjectives in there. Like how many more do I have to put in? Um, so I realized that what I really liked was radio journalism and I wanted to do a big project. And so when I found out, you know, Scott kept being like, you should do a book. I was like, I'm not going to do a book, but maybe I'll do a podcast about Grover. I was thinking I'd do like one episode and maybe work with like This American Life or, mm. you know, Snap Judgment, one of these like, big NPR podcasts. And then I found out that Grover's fourth wife was living about 30 minutes south of me in Denver. And I was like, okay, you have to do something. Go down and talk to her. And when I went to chat with her, I realized there's enough here to do kind of a series. Um, especially like if I were to get into like evolutionary biology, well, if Bigfoot did exist, where would it be in, you know, the evolutionary shrub that is earth's life forms, um, all this kind of stuff. So that was the start of it. And I had no idea if it would do well or not. Uh, it was purely a shot in the dark. Otherwise I probably would have come up with a more broad title than wild thing. I honestly thought there might only be the one season. So 
-hmm. Yeah, but to, to your point, I think when you're doing big projects like that, there is an element of like, well, why am I the right person to tell this story? What do I bring to this sure, that yeah. other people have not? And there's a lot of stuff out there on Bigfoot. And there are a lot of people who are way more qualified to talk about Bigfoot than I am because they've been steeped in this stuff for forever. But what did I bring to the table that was a little bit different? And it was this sort of finding this personal connection, discovering this person who was in my family mm -hmm. um, and his fascination with Bigfoot. And what does that say if a scientist who is well-respected is also someone who's out looking for Bigfoot, which then diminishes his sort of standing in his own academic community. And how do you marry this, this dichotomy of science and myth? And yeah. so that's basically where that got started. Um, and there is some, some of that in the third season as well, which is like, why am I the right person to tell this story? As there's certainly plenty more, plenty of people out there who are well-versed in nuclear issues and nuclear energy. And, you know, they can find a lot of resources out there, but this story happened near my hometown. It's something that just, you know, captured my attention. And I think having that personal connection to it or finding a personal connection is a way to sort of make the story yours mm -hmm. rather than just going in and telling a story about something that doesn't have that connection. I think about that sometimes in some of my videos, mm -hmm. like what, why, why should I cover this and there, there's right. a lot of topics that i haven't done just because i'm like oh, i just don't think i'm the right person for this but yeah um, and it's hard you know you're not everything you cover is going to be something you have a personal connection to the space stuff i didn't have a really tight connection to it i just i found that sort of the amuamua stuff really kind of captured my attention yeah and in a way that a lot of space stuff had not in the past and i just remember reading a lot of articles about it and being sort of like I think I was blown away most by the fact that we had not knowingly seen an interstellar object at that point. And to have this come through and it was so weird and like, because we are in this time, in this place with this technology, we recognize this for what it was. And it mm -hmm. just kind of blew my mind. Well, I think I could start to wrap some things up. Um, when does this start to, when does this come out? So the first season. episode will drop on May 17th and okay. premium subscribers will get two episodes that day. We are already in May. Jeez. Okay. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> time flat circle. Actually, when this comes out, it's going to be right about that time. So, Oh, great. That's everybody fine. go check it out. <laughs> as soon as you're done listening to this. Yeah. Um, and you're going to be dropping them like one week at a time or something. Yeah. Like that. One week at a time. And then the bonus episodes will be a little more intermittent. Um, I have a few ideas lined up and then it's just, you know, I'll, I'll put them in as they become available. I may not be on a really hard and fast schedule with that, but I will try and at least I'll always drop them on the same day so that mm -hmm. they show up. Um, but I also, I need a vacation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I also have a, so I don't remember if I told you this, um, wild thing will now be a middle grade children's book series. Oh. And the first book, um, I signed, a. am working with Abrams kid, Abrams kids, which is the publisher for diary of a wimpy kid. Mm -hmm. And these will start coming out in October. The first one is about Bigfoot and is based off the podcast, but there's a lot of new information mainly aimed at, you know, it's middle grade. So it's like nine to 13 and it's mm -hmm. explaining in a little more detail, like what DNA is and sort of the basic concepts that kids might not have, but adults generally do. And then the second book will be out the following fall and then the third one after that and so i have to get the manuscript for the second book in this summer so i've got to 
Okay. One, um, congratulations on that. Thank you. It's Two, very exciting. That's an amazing idea. I, I feel like, uh, I, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to always bring it back to what I do, but like, mm-hmm. um, I feel like some of the, the best topics that I've covered are ones where it's like, it starts with something kind of weird and esoteric, like Bigfoot or whatever. And then it yeah. goes down into like the basic science stuff where people can actually learn things. And especially mm-hmm. for kids of that age, I mean, like you said, you didn't pay much attention in physics class when you were a kid, but if it started right. with Bigfoot, it might have, <laughs> you know, yeah, it might have caught have, my, yeah, yeah, totally. And the other thing is, is I feel like if you're going to be concerned about science literacy and, you know, media literacy and the critical thinking, like start talking to kids when they're younger and mm-hmm. teach them how to think about these skills. So that, you know, oh, this is an interesting article. It's about some sort of mythological creature. Well, what do we know about it? What kind of information do we have? Does the, you know, does this fit with the scientific method in terms of like the evidence we have, like things like that, that can help them be better about parsing information as they get older. So that's awesome. Insidious plan to take over children's minds. But, but, but putting (laughs) off that vacation a little further. Yeah, exactly. So, which is why the bonus episodes might be a little bit hit or miss, but I think that there will be a lot of, um, cool interviews, including nuclear versus nuclear. No, I look forward to that one. <laughs> me, me being a little grammar Nazi. I'm always, yeah. Um, that, that's, that's really cool. I'm, I'm happy for you on that. Thank you. Um, there, there's always the thing for me, uh, you know, I guess I'm, I guess I'm a little bit caught in a YouTube trap where, mm. You got to put out the video every, I don't, I don't have to put out a video every week, but that's been like the thing that's the momentum that's kept my channel going this whole time. Right. So it's, it's like, it, it's really hard for me to just step away from that. Um, but at the same time, it's like when you're always trying to get a next Monday video out, it's really hard to work on a bigger long-term project yeah. where you can really dig in. Yep. And I haven't had a chance to really do that. And like talking to people like you that are working on these big projects and it's maybe, maybe you do one a year or something like that. Not, not that, I mean, that the, 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 the season is, is like, I'm, I'm kind of making that a one thing. I know it's not just one mm-hmm. thing, but, um, but being able to like, just take a deep dive and, and work on this one big thing and, and people who are authors that like work on a book for a couple of years or whatever. And then that's, that comes out. Like I've never gotten to do that. You should do it. It's a, it's a worthwhile experience. Could you like just pull from your back catalog for a, a few months and just be like, you know, classic Joe, watch Post this old one videos? again. Yeah. I don't know. How, I, cause I know YouTube people can get your old videos without you posting them again, but mm-hmm. you know, maybe they don't go that deep into your catalog and you can pick some of your favorites. And I don't know if you get in trouble for like posting the same content because they have that content ID system and can mm-hmm. scan and find out like if you're copying somebody else for, per se. Um, I mean, I might have to like delete the old one and then repost it somewhere else or something, but. Oh yeah. Um, Joe classic. Yeah. <laughs> I've been doing it long enough. Actually what's, what's really upsetting is, is uh, I, I think I just happened to be doing it at that age in life when like the, the, the aging process starts to kick in a little bit more oh, or something, no. <laughs> but like I can go back two years and I look 10 years younger and it's just uh-huh. like, oh, my, my beard has actual color in it. And it's not as gray as it is now. And it's just, it's really upsetting. <laughs> so if yeah. I posted a video from like three or four years ago, everybody'd be like, did Joe dye his beard or something? I, that was a, I know that's a, the first comment that would come out. Right. Did Joe dye his beard? 
I feel like though, like you have got such an engaged and like enthusiastic audience who really supports you that if you were to say, Hey, I'm going to take a sabbatical and go spend a few months, like really honing in on one project. I think you would get, I think people would support that still. Of course I want that to be true. And it might be, um, but, but everybody's attention span is so short and there's so much content out there that I, I, I guess the worry is that like, if I, if I stepped away for a little bit, people would move on to something else and not to say they wouldn't be there when I come back and be like, mm-hmm. Oh, Joe's back or whatever, you know, but, um, yeah, yeah. this it's... is something I fight with too, because between seasons, I ca- I cannot do the like weekly day in and day out podcasts. Like I just can't do continually turn stuff out, especially mm-hmm. like the interviews are fun to do, but I really love crafting these stories and like putting in the production. And I, that's so much more complicated than just having a, a conversation with someone, but it's just, I really enjoy that part. Yeah. So I don't want to give that up, but I can't do that on a weekly basis. I just it cannot. Yeah. So there's big gaps between seasons. And sometimes I will hear from someone at the end of the second season who's like, oh my gosh, I loved your first and didn't even know you had a second one. And I know that there are people who probably missed it entirely, but I just kind of have to, yeah. Yeah. You just have to hope that they're going to find it again, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a tough. weird job. It's, it is a weird job. Uh, <laughs> and it treats, it ends up making you feel a little bit like a machine when the whole point was to free you from the bonds of capitalist slavery. Yeah. You know, I was actually are. saying to my wife the other day that like, um, <laughs> what, was know, I, huh? what was she uh, eating? Huh? What was she eating? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing at the moment. Um, that's why I was able to get her attention. No, um, <laughs> but, but about how, like, you know, I worked for 12 years in a cubicle and all I wanted was to get out and I did. And, and now I'm doing this thing and it's great. I, I know this is like the, the lamest thing in the world is for a YouTuber to complain about doing YouTube, but, uh, but it does kind of feel like I'm kind of right back where I started, where I'm like, it's still work. Doing, it's still work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's good for people to recognize the fact that even though this is a job that we generally enjoy, and we certainly are very lucky to be able to do this kind of work, it's, it's still a job and it still requires time and effort. And it means mm-hmm. you don't get to take vacations and, you know, you're constantly like begging for people's attention and it's, it's, <laughs> it's tough. And we're it's, all our own worst boss. Yeah, it's true. We are. All right. Well, I'll let you go. Awesome. Well, it was really fun to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me on. Big thanks to Laura for spending some time with me. Now go check out her podcast. The new season of Wild Thing is dropping right about now. Uh, But season one or two are out there and they are just So yeah, go check them out too. This episode was produced by Kimmy Britt, edited by Bray Brown. I'm Joe Scott. You can find me at Answers with Joe pretty much everywhere on the socials. Of course, my YouTube channel is Answers with Joe. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening. Please do share this if you thought it was interesting. A nice review on whatever podcast player you're losing right now usually goes a long way. But until next time, have a good one. Now go out there and start some conversations of your own. Take care.